I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick. Yesterday was the two-year mark since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. And for almost every other week during the last two years, Lena Wen and I have had the privilege of coming on here and talking with all of you out there. And with that as introduction, Lena. Thank you, Neil. In the first part of this program, Lena's going to discuss and provide perspective on the state of the pandemic, the new CDC metrics for masking, and an update on vaccinations. We'll then have time for Q&A. And I said reflection in the second part of the program. I've invited two of our residents who now we've all gone through residency training at some point. But imagine going through residency when almost your whole residency has been during COVID. And I've invited two of our residents to come on and talk about their experience doing residency during the COVID pandemic. Before we go into our our regular content, though, three quick slides. One, to level set as we usually do. Here we see the slide uh, of, of the current rates, and we see that the rates of cases have continued to decrease dramatically week by week over the last six weeks. The number of patients hospitalized, the number of deaths, deaths of course lagging, still remaining high, uh, have continued to decrease. That is fantastic. And that has allowed an opening up and a change in the CDC's guidance that Lena is going to talk about. The next slide, though, reminds us that fundamentals are always important and they remain so. On one side, we see daily cases. On the other side, we see deaths. The upper one is for unvaccinated individuals, lower is for vaccinated. You see this enormous difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated people and case rates, but even more so with regard to severe disease, hospitalization, ICU admissions, and death rate. And that is the dramatic slide here. And it's put here as a reminder to us that our work is not yet done. There's a large part of the population that is not fully vaccinated. And more and more, this is not going to be people who are running in for vaccines. It's not going to be the public health messaging. It's going to be up to you and I as individual clinicians talking to our individual patients who trust us about getting that vaccine because that's truly the only way long-term that we'll all be safe and that our patients will be safe. And the third slide I want to share is from the UK. We could see similar slides from the Netherlands and from a number of European countries. And the concern here is the edge of this graph, that we're beginning to see an uptick again in COVID cases. I'm not going to say anything more than that other than to say that that reinforces the need for continued vigilance and continued emphasis on vaccination. With that as introduction, Lena, let me hand the floor to you. Thank you, Neil. I want to emphasize what you just mentioned about where we are in the pandemic. We've always started our broadcast in this way about what is the state of the pandemic. And I would say overall, it is much improved. We went through this horrific Omicron blizzard that really was devastating, even though Omicron is a mild variant because so many more people became infected. Our hospitals were once again strained, overwhelmed, and we saw a large spike in the number of people who died. But 
thankfully, Omicron went up. Omicron also went down as almost as quickly as it went up. And we're now seeing a um, large proportion of the country that is in a much better place when it comes to number of, of new cases to the point that every state has lifted restrictions on mandatory masking which I believe is a good thing because restrictions like that that are met that are protective measures and that do work to reduce infection they were never meant to be for forever in fact that is what we said at the beginning when these protective measures were issued that they were meant to be issued during a state of emergency and people tune out you know they're not going to believe what we say in the future if we say that there is a state of emergency unless we also show that we're willing to lift the measures as soon as they are no longer needed and so this is the reason why i'm very glad that President Biden, for example, um, has put out a plan for basically stating that we need to live with the virus, that, look, the number of individuals who are still dying from COVID, of course, it's not acceptable. We're not saying that we find it acceptable that this is the level of disease that's still happening now. But at the same time, people cannot put their lives on hold indefinitely. We can't have widespread population-based mitigation measures indefinitely. And I think I, and I have been writing about this and talking about this with NACE for, for months now that as soon as the state of emergency no longer needs to exist, people should try to go back to their pre-pandemic lives while also we prepare for what's ahead meaning that there could very well be new variants that arise. Already there is this stealth Omicron variant, BA2, that is now 8% of all new cases here in the U.S., according to the CDC. Um, this new variant, thankfully, appears to still respond to the vaccines that we have, so there's no immune escape. But could there be a variant that arises in the future that's more virulent and cause more se severe disease that may even spread more easily and may evade the protection of existing immunity? That could happen, and we need to plan for that. But I also think it's important for us to try to move on while we can. Now, there's been criticism, of course, of this approach, specifically for the 7 million people in America who are immunocompromised, who are saying they can't let down their guard. Or what about individuals who are elderly with chronic medical conditions who are still more likely, even if they're vaccinated, to end up in the hospital than someone who is otherwise healthy simply because of underlying medical conditions? And so I would say for these individuals, it's that this is why it's so important for us to continue to have um, widespread accessible testing and critically better treatments because we need to be able to turn COVID from something that is a potentially fatal disease into something that's manageable. And we can do that through vaccination because vaccines dramatically reduce the likelihood of severe disease. We also do that through early detection and then access to treatments that further reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. All this said, we are now coming to the terrible um, uh, landmark of a million deaths um, due to COVID in the U.S. And so even as we are celebrating entry into a new phase of the pandemic, I think it remains a, a reminder to us that this is not over and that we can't normalize this level of debt, that we still have to do what we need to when it comes to, as Neil was saying, incentivize vaccination and also improving treatments and access to testing and treatments too.
Now, the second topic I want to talk about related to this is the CDC's new metrics for what they are saying are the or what they are calling the COVID nineteen community、uh, level. Now, previously, the CDC was issuing metrics simply or issuing recommendations for masking and other mitigation measures solely based on the metric of infections. The problem, though, is now that we have vaccines, we have, for the most part, decoupled infections with severe illness, and so there have been a lot of us over the last several months saying we need to have a metric of hospitalization and not just of any infection, because that's ultimately what should determine whether masks and other mitigation measures come back. If our hospitals are so strained that people can't can't have care, then that is a collapse of our society. That should be our、um, our our metric. And so the CDC issued new metrics based on this. They're still considering case counts, but mostly they're considering hospitalizations due to COVID nineteen, as well as hospital capacity, inpatient hospital capacity. They've made this, I think, much easier to understand, grouping into three color coded、um, levels: green, yellow, and orange. Green means low level of coronavirus, and in these areas, everyone can unmask. Orange is the highest level, and in these areas, people should still be masking. Yellow is this area in the middle and medium risk, and people should decide whether they want to mask based on their own medical circumstances. For example, somebody who's immunocompromised, severely ill, for, due to other issues, etc., should still mask versus others may choose not to. I think this makes it a lot easier to understand, and also I would liken this in a way to a weather forecast that just as. When、um, the way that you decide how many layers to wear or whether to bring an umbrella, it depends on where you are located. You don't look at the weather forecast for the United States. You look at the weather forecast for where you are, and if you're traveling, you also look at where you are going. So I like that concept because maybe you're living in an area where there is low levels, or you're in green, and you can look this up.、Um, CDC now has a website that you can look up the COVID nineteen community level by、um, by your by your zip code by your county, which I think is really helpful. And so you can look to see maybe your area is in green. You can now resume your pre pandemic normal in the place that you live. But if you're traveling somewhere else that's in orange, you want to make sure that you bring your masks with you and be prepared. Prepared to have a higher、um, level of um, of um,、uh, of、uh, protection, including potentially testing prior to getting to- together with people in those areas. Now, of course, a reminder about masking is just because masks are no longer required doesn't mean that people shouldn't mask. And I know that for myself, when going to a grocery store, when going to crowded places indoors where I'm around people of unknown vaccination status, even though I am in an area that's green. I'm still choosing to mask because it's not a big deal for me to mask in these settings, and I think again we need to be tolerant of individuals who are making decisions based on their own medical circumstances. All right, so I think you know the the move then ha- is、um, away from government mandates. To individual decisions, and I think that that makes the decisions and the help that we'll provide our patients even more important than before, because they're going to be coming to us with so many different decisions about what should I do in my circumstances. Now, I want to,、um, for the third part of my presentation, talk about、uh, updates to vaccines, and in so doing, I want to address the three most common questions that our audience, all of you, tend to ask about, which is about boosters, children, and fertility. 
So first, let me address boosters. There have been many studies now that show a third dose of the mRNA vaccines, of the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines, decrease hospitalization and death, decrease symptomatic infection in light of Omicron. Very clear evidence that people need to have three doses if it's Pfizer and Moderna, or if you got Johnson & Johnson, you need to get a second dose of something, either Johnson & Johnson or a second dose that's Pfizer or Moderna. Also good news, because people often ask, well, what about do we need to have a fourth dose? So people who are immunocompromised should get that fourth dose, according to the CDC. But people who are not don't need to get a fourth dose at this time. And that's because there have been a number of studies that show that three doses seem to stimulate a wide array of protection. Um, A a study in the journal Cell found that T-cells are likely long-lived after three doses, Also, a a paper in Nature found that B cells that produce antibodies continue to mature even six months after vaccination. So people who are immunocompromised, get your fourth dose. Everybody else, get your third dose. There's no recommendation for a fourth dose at this time. It may be needed in the future, but not for not probably this spring. And I would I would wager probably not this summer. Also, if you have recovered from COVID, for example, if you had two doses and then recovered um, from, and then you got Omicron recovered from that, likely the two doses plus an infection is very robust and you do not need a third booster dose on top of that. All right, what about children? There have been some studies recently that have looked at, um, at, um, at the protection of children for symptomatic infection after two doses. And they found that the two doses don't seem to be that effective against symptomatic infection, but are effective against severe illness. Now, um, we get this question a lot about, well, why should children even get vaccinated? The reason is more than 1,500 children have died during this pandemic here in the U.S. Um, Many of these children are individuals who were previously healthy. Um, And so, yes, it is true that kids tend to become much less ill than adults and that the number of children who become severely ill compared to adults is much lower. However, if there's a chance of us reducing something that is the low probability, but of something awful, we would want to do that. And so the recommendation remains that children five and older for whom the vaccine is authorized should be getting vaccinated at this time. Mm-hmm. Younger children, um, are the vaccine is being tested in these kids. The latest update is that we'll hear sometime in April for these younger kids, six months to four years old, um, a three-dose vaccine is being tested and we will um, and we will have more information about that, hopefully for our next um, COVID update. Last topic is about, is about fertility. We get asked about this every time. What about pregnant women? What about um, the impact on... On, on families that are choosing to become pregnant. There was a large study funded by the NIH of more than 2,000 couples looking to become pregnant that found no impact on fertility um, for those who got the vaccine. But interestingly, they did actually find a temporary effect on fertility for males who were infected by COVID, that for at least a short period of time, those males who were recently infected had a lower chance of conceiving. There have been now also a slew of studies that have shown that COVID during pregnancy is very dangerous, that there is a higher risk of stillbirth, a higher risk of preterm labor, a higher risk of intubation and being in the ICU, um, a higher risk of, of miscarriage during pregnancy for people who got COVID during pregnancy. 
On the other hand, the vaccine is safe in pregnancy and ineffective uh, and, and, and also appears to give some antibody protection conveyed to the newborn through breast milk and across the placenta. So for all these reasons, there is um, we highly recommend for individuals looking to become pregnant or pregnant women to get vaccinated. Now, I know there's always a lot more that we can talk about with regard to vaccines um, in our COVID update, but I want to stop there and turn it over to you, Neil, for everyone's questions. Fantastic. And there are a lot of questions. We'll get through as many as possible. Let's start. There are two questions, more than two questions. Colleen, uh, Rena, um, I'm going to use Colleen's as an example because it was specific. A 28-year-old male who had COVID twice, first time in early 2020, next time in August of 21, never vaccinated. Should he get vaccinated? Yeah, that's interesting that um, this individual um, was that this individual actually got COVID twice. And in a sense, I think that that by itself should be a reason to recommend that someone is vaccinated because we know that if you were infected with COVID, you do have some level of of, uh, of immune protection, but that immune protection likely is not as long lasting and as robust as if they had COVID and were subsequently also vaccinated or if they were vaccinated and subsequently had COVID. That, that combination of vaccination plus recovery probably induces the strongest um, and most robust level of immunity. Um, now, um, this individual is well past his second time of getting COVID, especially if he last had COVID in August. And so I would recommend that he receives two doses of the mRNA vaccines at this time. Yeah, and I, th I think that's really important because that question comes up a lot. Here's one, though, that's more nuanced. And I know it's something that you've written about, Lena. Rena asked, do you think that kids should remain masked in school at least for another few months? I'm worried about the uptick in cases in the UK after relaxing mask mandates. Tough one, important one. Yeah, it's a really important question, and I have a strong point of view on this. So first, I want to distinguish between what my recommendation is now versus what it would have been a year ago. And that's important because I think sometimes we in public health um, get accused of flip-flopping when our recommendations change. But recommendations are meant to change. We all of us as clinicians know when there's new science, when the circumstances change, you would expect that your recommendations also change. A year ago, vaccines were not available for children. Now, vaccines are widely available for all who are five and older here in, in the U.S. In addition, we're dealing with a milder variant, Omicron, than previously. We also have a large percentage. There was a recent study that found, I think, that more than 60% of children have already gotten COVID, especially during the Omicron wave. So we're at a different place because of the vaccines being available, because of, uh, because of Omicron. Also, we now know about the impact of one-way masking, that individuals who choose to wear a mask, an N95, K95, or KF94, so a high-quality mask, that protects them very well, even if others around them are not masking. In the light of all of this, plus the fact that COVID levels across the country are dramatically falling to the point that the CDC says that only 8% of the U.S. population right now is still in that orange category, meaning 92% of the country are living in areas where the CDC is not recommending masks. I think it is fine for mask mandates in schools to be lifted at this point. 
again, I would not have said this a year ago when we did not, when we had higher levels of cases, we did not have vaccines widely available, especially for, for children. And we were dealing with a different variant than we are now. But given the place that we're at, it's important for us to constantly measure or constantly think about the protective measures that we put into place, weighing the risks and benefits, understanding that it is both true that masks reduce the risk of uh, of infection and that they need to come to an end at some point. And I think we are at that point that that um, that that uh, the scale has tipped. And I would just tell you, even as the mom of two kids under the age of five who have not yet been vaccinated, I am fine uh, with my with my four year old unmasking in preschool. And that's because the level of COVID in our community is relatively low and because of Omicron as the dominant variant here. You know, Lena, something that you said in one of the articles you wrote for the Washington Post that really stood out in my mind was that, and I I think I'll get it almost right, that good health is not just the absence of COVID-19. And and I think that we're moving in a way to recognize that this issue that you and I have talked about often about nuance and that it's not the same for everyone and that a child masking and not learning how to read another child's face has very real consequences so that as we move toward an era where more people are vaccinated and hopefully a variant that continues as variants go to be not as virulent, not as as threatening, uh, the importance of other health issues become uh, magnified. And it's not just all about COVID-19. I want to throw out another practical question uh, that Helen raised, and, and I'll read from Helen's comment. Do fully vaccinated, boosted clinicians, especially in the ICU, uh, need to wear, still need to wear complete coverage, PAPR masks when taking care of COVID-positive patients? I mean, I believe so. And the reason is the level of virus that you would be dealing with in that kind of setting. We believe that viral load matters. And if you are exposed constantly to individuals who have high viral loads by virtue of them being in the ICU um, with COVID, then I think you want to take additional steps to protect people. Again, I think this is very different when we're talking about community levels. If the level of COVID in the community is really low, I don't think you need to have all the protective measure in the community. But in the work setting, if your level of COVID is still extremely high, I would continue to advise on on having all those precautions when when dealing with COVID patients. And and I would strongly agree. And I I think it's important to realize when we talk about vaccination and booster decreasing severe disease, there's still a lot of breakthrough cases. And knowing a number of healthcare providers who got COVID through their boosted uh, state, it's it's not a wonderful experience. Again, it's not life-threatening, but I'm not sure any of us want to knowingly walk into a room and come out with needing a week off from work and feeling miserable and also having the chance of, before we know we have it, spreading it to others. I, I go regularly to a nursing home environment, so I'm very careful 
that I wet mask there. And I don't want to be in the position of being the person to bring that into that environment. I think we have time for one more question before we move on to our second half, then we'll still have time for additional questions. Lena, it looks like you might have spotted a question you particularly are that you're looking at, or I can ask one of the ones that I saw. Um, I, uh, I, you can feel free to ask questions. I was just scrolling through <laughs> to identify, to look sure, at all the things sure. that you all write through, Great. but I, I don't have one in particular. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, Naomi asked a question about the effectiveness, effectiveness of molnupiravir. And I, I'll take that one, uh, just cause it raises the issue of treatments. So I'll be as brief as I can. Mol, molnupiravir is relegated to last line treatment. Because while the initial data seemed promising 50% efficacy, the rest of the trial was much less effective. So in total, it really only had uh, less than 50% efficacy. The end of the trial had about 30% efficacy. It's relegated to last line treatment. Paxlovid would be first line antiviral. That fortunately has begun to be more and more available. So I think that will continue to be the go-to medication. I'll just mention briefly, because it's a real issue as we move to a society where in general, we're not masking or patients who are immunocompromised still uh, are vulnerable. And for them, masking remains important, but also we can remember to let our immunocompromised patients know that an antibody, a long-term antibody that lasts six to 12 months is available, Evushield, uh, and to let their either uh, oncologist know, their transplant physician know that they are uh, likely eligible. And that can be uh, just an experience changing protection because it decreases by over 70% the likelihood of getting COVID and needing to be hospitalized for that group. So to our audience, have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks for spending a Saturday with NACE. Everyone here at NACE does their best to get the best faculty to give you the best CME. Have a good, enjoyable, safe rest of your weekend. Thank you.